You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. 1 Samuel 13. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore and multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within their days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord will have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin, but the Philistines encamped in Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shual, another company turned toward Beth Horon, and another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goats. So, on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. These are the true words of the living God. Bond and faith. Thank you. Thank you, Ethel, for reading scripture. 
Hi, good afternoon, Redemption Hill. I'm Joshua. I'm husband of Ethel, uh, brother of Joseph, um, friend of David, and, and uh, I'm an elder here at Redemption Hill Church. And it is a joy to be with you. It is a joy to sing songs unto our Lord to you. And Redemption Hill Church, third congregation, I just have to commend you. You have all been singing unto God and unto one another so wonderfully has been ministering to my soul. I say that sincerely, so thank you for that. Now with that said, First Samuel chapter 13. Will you join me as we go to our God in prayer? Our gracious God, we come before you. We come before you confessing the surpassing worthiness of our Saviour Jesus Christ. He is worthy. So remove from our hearts all worthless affections. Place in our hearts, grow in us, strengthen us, that we would have such a clear and firm knowledge of this Jesus Christ, how we need to know him, how we need to have our hearts set on him. Do this by the power of your spirit. We ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. Sorry, friends, I'm not sure if the mic is a little bit too sensitive. We might have to just adjust it a little. I'm hearing the echoes and every little movement of my mouth. So I'm not sure if that bothers you. Um, hopefully it doesn't. First Samuel 13. It's my way or the highway. I wonder how many of you here are familiar with this American saying. It was a lot more popular in the late 1900s. It's my way or the highway. Not to be confused with what our disgruntled local taxi uncles say. They say it's my way, not the highway. But whatever the case is, the, the American variant or the Singaporean variant, it is actually a same simple message. When you hear someone say that, it's my way or the highway, they are basically saying there's only one way my way. And, and, and this sort of a saying, it smells a little bit of harsh rule, an uncompromising stance, severity, doesn't it? Yet, at the same time, if you really think more about it, isn't this essentially the spirit of the law and the commandments? Isn't it true that God's sovereign rule acts in this way also? I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear God's word say it's God's way or no other way at all. Perhaps you wish him a little bit more collaborative, progressive. Even you, my good Christian friend, don't you wish that sometimes, I mean, life in this world is not so simple, it's not black and white. Isn't it, I don't know, just a little bit more effective to harness the wisdom of the crowd? Well, our text today has answers for us. Our text today comes as part of a larger unit in the book of 1 Samuel. If you are joining us here for the first time, welcome. We are reading the book of 1 Samuel. Because there's a 1 Samuel, you can naturally expect there's a 2 Samuel. And together, they form a historical narrative. They form a historical narrative that traces the life of early Israel almost 3,000 years ago. This early life of this particular people, Israel. They were God's people. And God had been leading them and guiding them along despite their weakness of faith. They were weak in their faith. And at the same time, despite God's leading and rescue, 
They persisted and grew in their love of the world and the world's ways, so much so that they demanded a king to judge them like all of the nations. So God gave them a king. But God gave them a combo meal. It was a king together with a warning. Uh, we, we, We heard about that last week. If you were here with us as Joseph was preaching for us, 1 Samuel 12 verses 14 to 15. Do you remember the warning? If Israel and her king fear the Lord, if they trust, that's what fearing the Lord means, if they trust that he is who he says he is, if they serve and obey the Lord, then it will be well with them. If you fear the Lord, it will be well with you. Otherwise, the hand of the Lord will be against them, all of them. This first king's name was Saul. And chapters 13 to 15, they bring us to see, spoiler alert, the beginning of the end of this king, Saul. Today, we're just going to see chapter 13 in this 13 to 15 unit, which means that we're just going to think about the beginning of the beginning of the end of King Saul. But I wonder if you've thought about it. What exactly does a chapter like this have to say to us today? What does God's word have to say to you today? I put it to us that the same challenge I raised earlier is the challenge posed to Saul. What happens? What comes to mind when you hear God say, it's my way or the highway? How exactly would Israel's first king respond? Our text will show us that despite our deficient and disobedient ways, the Lord's work will be fulfilled in the Lord's determined way. And all of this is great news. All of this is to show us a loving father and exactly why it is a good thing for us that he determines the way. Let's jump into the text. We'll be following it in three parts. You see that on the screen. And the deficiency of our ways will be known in the first. Look with me to verse 1. Verse 1 tells us that it has been some time since Saul became king. How were, the people of the, uh, how were the people of God doing? How was Saul doing? Well, at a glance, at a glance, it seems like they were doing well enough. Things seemed well enough. Saul, he finds victory against the Philistines through Jonathan, his son. Well, now his band of warriors shrunken down to 3,000, smaller than the 300,000 in chapter 11. But even then, even then, victory is won. Yes, victory is won through Jonathan, not exactly Saul, but you can sort of imagine Saul's mind, right? I'm the father, he's my son, his victory, my victory, tomato, tomato, pretty much the same thing. So Saul starts tooting his horn, he sounds the trumpet, and he calls the people to gather to him at Gilgal. Then their true colors start to show. It was the singer-songwriter John Legend who penned the words, even when I lose, I'm winning. Well, with Saul, it's very much the opposite. Even when he wins, he's losing. Look, look at the text. After his victory, the Philistines muster to fight with Israel. And they are so numerous that they appear like the sand on the seashore in multitude. Yet, before the Philistines can even inflict any loss on Saul, the people start losing. Look with me. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And Saul, he was still at Gilgal and all the people followed him, trembling. Isn't this just sad? Do, do you see here this picture of a desperate, a deficient, fearful, trembling people? But what's really sad 
uh, it's not just their fear, you know, because in some sense, uh, against an overwhelming force, yeah, you'd be afraid. What's really sad is not merely their fear, but their faithlessness. Think together with me. This whole Philistines are encamped against us, mustering to attack. Has that happened before? It has, it has. Chapter 7. In chapter 7, it has happened before. What happened then? Uh, look to the words on the screen. The Philistines mustered to attack. Did the people cry out in fear? Yeah, they did. It's natural to be afraid. But then the people back then, they turned to hide in the Lord. Instead of hiding in caves and holes and tombs and rocks and cisterns, and the Lord their God, He delivered them. By the mighty thunder of His voice, He delivered them. What killed this response of faith? What changed? What eroded their memory of God's merciful and powerful deliverance? I mean, don't get me wrong, I, I really recognize that their human conditions were quite something else. In fact, the, the conclusion to this chapter, verses 19 all the way to 23, they show us exactly how difficult things were. There was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. The Philistines said, let's not let them make swords or spears. Even the farming tools, their plowshares, even that has to be sharpened by the Philistines. In modern terms, the Israelites had very much lost the armament race. They had no weapons of war. Uh, what are you going to do with your, with your plowshare against a chariot? Uh, wave it around menacingly? <laughs> but but, but when, when, when you really think about it, all of these conditions put together, their deficient circumstances, their faithless response, these things put together are hinting at the failure of the people's chosen king. Remember chapter 12? They demanded a king instead of God. Now they got their king. What good has your king done for you? Has he delivered you from God's enemies? Clearly not. Has he taught you to grow in your fear of the Lord and your trust of him? It really doesn't seem like it. And so we are meant to see that instead of teaching the people to trust in the Lord, this picture of a deficient king, it answers the question, that the condition that Samuel had laid out. Saul had failed. Instead of teaching them to fear and trust the Lord, they only grow in their fear of men. And all of this makes verse 3 all the more impressive. Think about it. Amidst a depleted people and a deficient king, deliverance comes through Jonathan, a faithful son. Instead of turning to hide, they really should have considered what led Jonathan to such success. They should have asked Jonathan, what great things do you know of our God that we might learn from this way of faith? But they don't do that. And that's also the focus of our next chapter in chapter 14. So we'll come back next week to see more of what that's like. But for now, here in this text, we see a clear picture and a clear message. We are to remember that the Lord, He works even amidst our deficient ways. With that said, what caused such deficiency? What led to such decay, such a fear of man instead of a fear of the Lord? And what can we learn that we might avoid such deficiency? The next few verses in our Bibles, they are the key to our text. It's almost as if the author of 1 Samuel is giving us an autopsy report of how these Israelites ended up playing dead, hiding in tombs. And here's the report. Here's the report. Death comes with the disobedient king. Look with me to verse 8. You can almost imagine the scene, can you? You see Saul, he's anxiously pacing. 
the people relentlessly trembling. Saul nervously glances at his uh, sundown. Seven cycles have passed. The prophet Samuel has not yet arrived. And he hears the pitter-patter of footsteps, but they are not the footsteps of arrival, but departure. The people are scattering from him. So he thinks to himself, I'm the king. The Philistines are encamped against me. The people are scattering. I, I, I should go. I should go and do um, that thing that secures God, God's favor from, for, for myself, shouldn't I? And what, what's, what's that thing? What worked the last time the Philistines came up against us? Oh, it's that offering thing, that First Samuel chapter 7 thing. Do you remember that? Right as the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. Do you see that detail in the text? Back in chapter 7, right as the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, God defeated them once Samuel had offered up the burnt offering. Now, the Philistines here, they are encamped, they're not yet attacking, but maybe Saul's thinking, maybe God does a preemptive strike once the, once the offering is offered up. We're not actually sure if Saul was the one who made the offering, he could have asked the nearby priest to do it. But the point here is that Saul commissions the offering of his own accord, apart from God's word. So Saul says, let's do the lamb bringing thing and, and um, after that I'm going to do the neck slitting thing and I'm going to do the, the, the blood sprinkling thing and, and the offering's done and, so, and, uh, and favor should have been secured for me and, and oh, Samuel, you're here. Isn't that the scene that, that we see? But think with me, what's wrong with this scene? What exactly did this king do wrong? Are you ready for the big review? Here's the big idea. Saul disobeyed God's word. The Lord's work must be done in the Lord's way. It's his way or the highway. The immediacy of Samuel's arrival, if you look with me to the text, it suggests that Samuel might not have actually been late. He comes right after Saul makes the offering. So Samuel could have been just on time, but just not early enough to give Saul any sort of comfort. But whatever the case, whatever the case, even if Samuel was late, God's instruction was clear. It was crystal clear. God's chosen prophet will show you what you shall do. You may be king, but you are to be the king who fears God and stands under his word. You don't get to decide it for yourself. How else will the people learn to trust and fear God if their king treats God like a favor vending machine? How will that happen? So in one sense, it really is that simple. The Lord had given a command. Wait. Wait for God's prophet to give you God's word. Saul had disobeyed it. So in one sense, it's really that straightforward. But in another sense, it also goes deeper. Look with me to the text. Samuel's exchange with Saul reveals at least two defective views that Saul had of who God is and what God really wants. Two defective views. The first view, blame, must be shifted. I read for us. As soon as Saul had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Worse meet than greet in all of history. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, then eventually I did the offering. Do you hear what Saul is saying? Think about it, Samuel. I may have disobeyed God's command, 
But look at these people. I am their king, and they are deserting me. And Samuel, look at yourself. You are God's prophet who tells God's word, but you can't tell time? Couldn't you have just, I don't know, arrived one night earlier, checked in nicely, slept in cozy, woke up, maybe even have some breakfast in bed, then you know, go do that offering thing that gives me the favor thing? But couldn't you have done that? Does Saul's reasoning sound familiar to you? Church, we read our Bibles from left to right, meaning the earlier parts into the later parts. So this reasoning should sound familiar to you. This reasoning echoes all the way back to Genesis 3. These are words of blame shifting. And I hope you see that the author of 1 Samuel, he wants us to see that. He wants us to see exactly that. You can almost hear it. If only I had a better people, then I wouldn't have been tempted to disobey. If only I had a better prophet or better transport infrastructure, then, then I wouldn't have been tempted to disobey. Do, do you see how quickly Saul turns to justify himself, to shift blame, even though he knows that he had broken God's commands? And so Redemption Hill Church... I say this tenderly. Beware the blame-shifting heart. It sets you straight on that same path of your forefather, Adam. Beware the blame-shifting heart. How much longer will you go on excusing your sin through the behaviours of someone else? I know that there are those among us who have really been hurt by real evil wickedness. I know that. I recognize that. But then, even then, how much longer will you let your sin be excused by the behavior of someone else? Friends, I know it is a scary thing. I know what it is like to have your faults brought into the light. I know how quickly your defense mechanisms spring up the moment fault is figured out. I know that. But of self-justification, there will be no end. And we are to beware this pattern of life because if you are stuck, if you find that you are always stuck in this pattern of blame shifting, then it actually betrays a deadly belief. Do you know what it tells you about your belief? It tells you that you actually believe that God is chiefly concerned with fault-finding. Why else would you go about all your day blame-shifting? You think that God is chiefly a cosmic discipline master. You think that God's grand mission in life is to figure out how many infringements all of you have had and to quickly book you for it, record your demerit points, punish you for that. If you're stuck always in this, in this pattern, be careful about the belief of God that it reveals in your heart. Is that what you think of God? Is, is that how you relate to Him whenever things flare up? But we know better, don't we? That's not who our God is. God is not like that at all. And we are going to see with clarity exactly who God is in a few moments. But first, the second defective belief. Saul believed that favor must be forced. I read again. Saul said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. 
and I had not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Friends, how you understand this burnt offering thing, if this is your first time hearing about it, how you understand the burnt offering will determine the way you read your Old Testament, it will determine the way you read your Bibles, it will determine how you understand the law, it will determine how you know God's commandments, it will determine what you think of God, it will determine whether you see God as a loving father or a cosmic discipline master. Because Saul was blind to the meaning of the burnt offerings. He had too small a view of God. He thought that God cares way more about your performance than God cares about your trust. But the purpose of the burnt offerings was precisely to teach God's people to trust in Him. In the burnt offering, if you think about what actually happens, you can read about this in the book of Leviticus. In the burnt offering, you search amongst your flock to find an unblemished animal. It has to be a perfect animal. Then you lay your hands on the animal, symbolizing that you need a perfect substitute. And then you watch the animal die so that you would know clearly the severity of your sin. But throughout this entire process, you are meant to see and recognize and trust that you need a perfect substitute. You need your blame to be atoned, accounted, paid for, not shifted. You need God to grant you favor. That's why he gives us the burnt offerings, not just force his hand for it. You need to learn to trust in God's merciful deliverance which is really just another way of saying you need to learn to fear the Lord. Behold His holiness that demands every sin, your sin to be accounted for. And then behold even more clearly His great, great surpassing mercy in promising a perfect substitute for the judgment that you deserve. That little lamb is really meant to just be a picture of God's promise. A perfect substitute for the judgment you deserve will come. Trust in Him. Look, He is a loving Father who makes a way for rebels to be reconciled back to Him and His way is the way of His mercy, not your might. Is that what you think of Saul, uh, of God today? But with Saul... We see, Saul, if you disobey God just to perform the offering, how are you learning to trust? You don't really know God's heart. You think God is angry in the need of a little midday snack before he'll go on defeating your enemies? You think God is impressed by your lamb-slaying skills? But all of this is so important. It's such a crucial point that Samuel will go on to make this again two chapters later, explicit to Saul, he says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offering and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. My friends, I hope you are hearing this. What comes to your mind when you hear of God's commandments? Do you think that God cares about you performing religious duties better? A little more Bible, a little more prayer, coming to church regularly, and then maybe he'll grant you some favor. Things will, will flow smoothly. Or are you just stuck time and again trying to shift blame? Or do you really see in his commandments that he's teaching you to trust him? And it's so important that you, you do that, for there is nothing more important than that 
rested trust. Nothing. For nothing else in all of this world will deliver you from that terrible fear of man that has your heart in an iron vice grip. You and I know what that's like. You and I know what it's like to be carried along by the fear of man. You and I know what it's like to soar when you have the praise of man and then to crash once you have their criticism. You know what it's like to stand tall when people are around you and they like you and then to shrink small once you lose them. The fear of man will promise you the heavens according to your performance, but the very moment you slip up and fail, it will crush you to hell. And there is nothing else that will deliver you from this terrible fear of man. Only a fear of God can displace your fear of man. Only recognizing that God's way is really the only way that matters and we relate to him by his mercy. Only recognizing that can help you to chip away at that fear of man. But if you're not trusting God and if you're not fearing him, then you are really just trusting yourself to the world and the works of your hands and those ways will only lead to death. Look, your people, they are hiding in tombs. So the word of judgment, it falls on disobedient soul and we are left to consider one chilling picture. What happens when you keep believing these defective things? You end up with a hopeless heart. Verse 15 tells us as much. Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal. Samuel gets up and he leaves. It's just like that. Sometimes that's what judgment looks like. For the king who wanted to stand in disobedience to God's word, well, in some sense, he gets what he wants. God's word through the prophet Samuel leaves. But the really tragic thing is that Saul just rises and goes. He doesn't chase after the prophet. He doesn't cast himself upon God's mercy. He simply rises and goes. And he goes from Gilgal. Those of you who were here last week know the significance of this place, Gilgal. I know that we've been reading a lot of verses. We've been seeing even an emotionally charged exchange between Samuel and Saul. But the more I read this text, the more I see that, the, that this little detail in verse 15, it contains a world of tragedy. Do you see it? Do you see the tragedy of Gilgal? I tried hard to think about how this might be best illustrated and explained. Uh, and I thought of uh, the story of Jimmy's car crash. Have you heard the story of Jimmy's car crash? Well, maybe not, but I'll tell it to you. It's, a, it's an entirely fictional story. Um, if you're here and your name is Jimmy and you've crashed your car, I'm, I'm so sorry. You can chat more after. But imagine with me. Imagine with me, Jimmy. He's your average Singaporean boy, um, except that he was raised in a single-parent family, raised by his dad. Jimmy, it's his big day today. It is a momentous occasion. He is graduating from his basic military training. He has just gone from a boy to man, as all Singaporean sons do. And as part of his reward, dad hands him the keys to the family car. Go, have a little fun with your buddies. So off Jimmy goes, spinning the wheel, enjoying the ride, all the way until he crashes the car. It's a pretty big mess. Thankfully, no one is mortally injured, but it's serious enough. So Jimmy heads home, head down, shoulders 
slumped. And he creaks the door open, and he sees Dad setting the table for his celebratory meal. Dad walks up to Jimmy, and he hands him the photo that was taken this morning at the graduation ceremony, and says, Jimmy, can you find a spot on our fridge for that? Put it up. You see, Jimmy and Dad, they've got one of those fridges that is really more of a photo montage than it is a fridge. It's, it's got like a whole wall of, of photographs. Have you seen one of those, those sorts? Well, Jimmy, he ambles up slowly to the fridge. His palms are sweaty, his knees are weak, arms are heavy. He's clutching the photo. His footsteps grow heavier as he draws nearer. And right as he reaches the fridge door, he loses it. The guilt is too much to bear. The disappointment and the shame that has been churning and churning and churning, they overcome him. So he drops the photo and he runs out of the family home in shame. It's a real tragedy. If only Jimmy had lifted his eyes up from himself to look at the fridge door, then he would have seen photo after photo after photo after photo of Dad's constant love. When Jimmy was just a baby in diapers, soiling himself, Dad was there. When Jimmy went for his first tooth extraction, Dad was there. When Jimmy didn't do so well for PSLE and had still had to collect his certificate, Dad was also there. All the way through in all of the Jimmy's ever-dependent existence, Dad was there, Dad would continue to be there, and Dad's steadfast love would surround him. Jimmy's big mess was a small thing for Dad's great love, but Jimmy was so locked into himself and his shame and his circumstances that he missed out every reminder of Dad's unswerving love. Gilgal is that fridge door plastered with family portraits. Gilgal is where God's people look and remember. Look at the verses on the screen. As sure as the ground is beneath their feet, so surely has God rolled away their shame. As surely as this place is named Gilgal, so surely has God worked great salvation for his people. And so it really is a tragedy of the highest order that in this place, Gilgal, where God's people are meant to remember the shame-rolling, salvation-working God that Saul simply walks away, unchanged, still held captive by his fear of men. And we'll see that unfolding all the more so in the rest of this book. Redemption Hill Church, what does this mean for us today? Friends gathered here, what does this mean for you today? What sorrows have you brought through the door? What shame do you hide in your heart? What sin do you battle with so closely? Sometimes maybe even give in to. Wouldn't it be the saddest thing in this world if you and I gathered in a place designed by God to help us to remember His greatness yet walked away unchanged and stuck in our shame? Imagine with me such a place, just imagine if such a place existed. From the moment you gather, you hear God's word that graciously calls sinners home. Come home, come and worship, put your idols to death. And, and then in this place, there would be music and there would be songs and you would hear a chorus of singing and you would hear songs of praise and songs of wonder, songs of grace and songs of mercy. And all of this would issue forth in prayer offered unto God, reminding us of his great character and his mighty deliverance, reminding us that we relate to him as a loving father. 
And, and, then, and then in such a place, we would open up this record of God's redemptive action in all of human history. And we would read, and we would hear, and we would read, and we would hear that He is a faithful God, and we would hear it proclaimed. And then we would have this special meal, this special meal that reminds us that salvation really has been accomplished and applied. And wouldn't it just be the saddest thing if you and I gathered in such a place but left unchanged? Church, there is nothing normal at all about our regular Sunday gatherings. Every week, we come to Gilgal. Every week. I know it can feel like your sorrow and your shame and your sin will always control you. But God gives us his church for this precise reason that we would remember and that we would trust and that we would be changed. I know a good number of you, but I really don't know what has been running through your hearts all the week long. I don't know what love of this world has dominated your thoughts. I don't know what shame you're hiding in. I don't know what disobedience you might be struggling with. I don't know what view of God you might have warped, thinking him a cosmic discipline master. I don't know all of these things. But what I do know is that God has given us each other that we might seek the Lord, as our call to worship said. Will you seek the Lord? Will you ask him to change your heart? Will you do so even right now that by the power of his Holy Spirit you would not leave unchanged? And will you do it with his people? We are really not meant to do this alone. That's why we intentionally have a time of post-service prayer. That's why we gather. Don't content yourself with just nice Sunday church vibes. Don't content yourself with a convenient Christianity. Don't content yourself with what is really just a blame-shifting, favor-forcing way, but content yourself with the greatness of your God's love. Seek Him. Hide in Him. Do all of these things, for He is the Lord who fulfills His work in His determined way. With this, we come to the last point. Verse 14 reads, but now, Saul, your kingdom shall not continue, for the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Despite Israel's deficiency, despite Saul's disobedience, God stays determined, determined in his way. And with Saul as a backdrop, I hope you are getting a sense also that what will really set apart this man after God's own heart is this posture of obedient trust. That's what we will soon see when David, King David, comes onto the scene. Be it a bear, lion, or the giant Goliath, David will respond in obedient trust. He will trust in the Lord, he'll obey his word, and he'll see God work out salvation. But you and I know that David is no perfect king. This David eventually falls into adultery and murder. What then? Believe it or not, even then, 
David teaches us a picture of obedient trust. Now, I, I'm not excusing David's sin. Uh, for those of us who are familiar with it, it is really no better than Saul's sin. But then, even then, when all of David's own claims to an untarnished righteousness is stripped away, David responds in obedient trust because he doesn't just hide in shame and blame. But he goes to God in sincere repentance. He grieves his sin. He recognizes that he deserves all of God's judgment, but still he will cast himself on God's mercy and steadfast love, just as God commands us to. Isn't that what Psalm 51 is about? All of this is God's way of teaching God's people to trust in the Lord. He is a trustworthy God, trustworthy to deliver us from our enemies, trustworthy to provide atonement for your sin and my sin, trustworthy to eventually give us a perfect king. It's the time of Christmas. Advent. You and I, Christians, we recognize this perfect king as King Jesus and rightfully so. He showed up in perfect obedience. He kept all the words of the law. He lived the life that you and I should have lived. He trusted in God despite all of the shame that raged around him, despite the fear of men that tempted him along every step of the way. He remained steadfast. That's why the author of Hebrews, if you look at the screen, describes Jesus with this sort of similarity in language. When Christ came into the world, Christ said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then Christ said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus Christ, God himself, come to show us what it is like to perfectly keep the law, to perfectly keep God's will. Isn't that wonderful? But at the same time, perfect obedience, if you think about it, uh, can really just make Jesus sound like the uh, cosmic school prefect. And if you and I are honest with ourselves, we don't really like the prefects. I'm sorry if you are here and you are a prefect. That's just the way it is. I mean, because Mr. Perfect, the prefect who can do no wrong, all, all they do is make us look bad. Is that what Jesus is here for? Read on. Christ said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. And by that will, that perfect obedience that he fulfills, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Friends, this changes everything. If you have ever doubted who God is and what God cares about, doubt no more. Here's what you need to know. God's will is to sanctify, make holy his people by the salvation that he provides. His will is not to simply crush us. His will is to make us holy and he does so through the salvation of Jesus Christ. Jesus' work, it wasn't just about perfect obedience in the sense of having a perfect record, but it was a perfect fulfillment. Didn't we sing this earlier? The law could never save us. Our lawlessness had won. But not until that perfect, spotless lamb had finally come. Jesus, that perfect, spotless lamb, had finally come to show us that the chief point of all of God's word is to teach us to trust in his perfect sacrifice 
And here he is. Here he is. He perfectly fulfills God's word. Friends, the kings of this world that you and I are tempted to serve, they offer us many promises. But I assure you they will disappoint. They offer us favor, but they tell you to sacrifice yourself to earn it. They offer you all sorts of pleasures, but sooner or later, what you realize is that they're really just offering up blame, your blame. But this King Jesus, do you see what he does? He offers up himself in our place. He lived the life we should have lived and died the death we should have died. And on that cross, God showed us just how serious he is about atoning blame, about granting favor, about fulfilling his will, merciful deliverance. Until you rest and receive this perfect sacrifice for your sins, blame shifting, favor forcing, cosmic discipline master, that will always be your ways and your view. But when you have received this rest, when you have received this perfect sacrifice, everything changes. On the cross, Jesus offered up himself in our place so that we would really be able to acknowledge the blame that we deserve. You would be able to see it. You would be able to say, I have sinned and I have fallen short. But you would also be able to say that it has been paid for. And he didn't just die. He was also raised from the grave. We notice that his trust in God was vindicated and vindicated all the way through so that you and I can trust. Death itself has been defeated. You can trust him all the way to the grave because the grave has been conquered. The worst that this world can do to you, that has been overcome. Why wouldn't you trust in this Jesus? Friends, in this world that our God has created, it's really his way or the highway. But you have to be absolutely clear. His way it is a way of fearing him, of knowing his mercy, of beholding the saviour that he has provided, and of now learning to love and walk in his way that leads to life. The highway is the way of the world. It is a way of fearing men. It is an express way for blame shifting and favor forcing. And it's really just the highway to hell. But thanks be to God, He has given and brought us into a better way. That's why the words of an old hymn can say To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear His pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distress, I toyed the precept to obey, but toyed without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I can do. But now, if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. In Christ, my servile works were done, a righteousness he raised, now freely chosen in the Son. I freely choose his ways. Is that who God is to you? Oh, if it isn't, pray that it is. Come and pray with us. We would love to have that conversation with you. 
Let's go to our God in prayer. Lord, we come before you with empty hands. We know what it means to have come to the end of ourselves. We know what it means to have all the strength that the world promises and all the favour that it grants fall flat. And for those of us who don't, we will. So we pray that in the greatness of your mercy, you would show us Jesus Christ. Show us the great joy of knowing that we do not belong to ourselves, but we belong to the great God, our loving Father who has loved us and made us for himself. It is good news, O Lord, that we are not our own, and so our heart is free. O Maker, won't you come and make what you will of me? There is nothing broken that you cannot repair. So Lord, we leave ourselves in your loving care. Thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ. May we know him and love him all the more. We pray these things in his name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.